Today on Education Explained, we're going to talk about the economics of education. Specifically, we're going to talk about how schools get paid and why that matters to your child, to our society, and to your future as a parent or learner. And in fact, I believe that how education, or should I say how schools are funded, is the single largest contributor to the dysfunction and problems that we see in schools today. So today's topic is a sensitive one, but it's got to be understood or else everything else gets lost in translation. So now, of course, there are many other problems in schools that are also contributors to this, the dysfunction that we hear about, like kids who would rather play video games about World War II than learn about the politics that caused it, or that teachers have been asked to play the role of social worker, truancy officer, public health first responder, nurse, counselor, parent, and on top of all that, to teach kids how to read all while earning some of the lowest pay in the professional world. Now, that's definitely an issue, no doubt. I could also talk about the corruption that seems to pop its head up in schools with concerning frequency, particularly in my district. Lucky for me, I've had the pleasure of seeing all that corruption up close over and over again. Goody for me. In future videos, I'll talk about all these topics in detail, but all of these challenges stem from the way that schools receive payment. So let's look at that on this first edition of Education Explained. Specifically, we're going to ask, one, is education a public good or marketplace? Two, can you trust the feedback you get from your school? Three, are good schools compensated better because we assume that kids are learning more? And then four, what's real estate got to do, got to do with it? Now, that song was in honor of the queen of rock and roll, Tina Turner, and I promise not to sing any more if you agree to subscribe. Education Explained is sponsored by viewers like you through our Patreon page. Please take a look and support if you like the content you see today. Now back to the show. Okay, ask yourself two questions. Where do school funds come from? Now that's kind of an easy one. Taxes, right? Okay, the second question is harder. How do schools get paid? Now, those of you in schools probably know the answer, but in my 15 years of working with parents, I found that only about 5% actually know the answer. Let me, let me give you a moment to think about it. Okay. In the United States and in most industrialized nations, as I said earlier, the vast majority of money in the education system, particularly K-12 or primary and secondary education, come through government through taxes. Taxes are collected by the government from all Americans and returned to the school system in the form of revenues. There are also private schools, home schools, now micro schools and hybrid schools. But anything that's outside of the government, I'll cover on a later video. The majority of monies collected in public schools come not from the federal government, but from state and local government. The federal government can exert its power by withholding funds or incenting certain activities, but education is generally a local issue. States, counties, and local school districts are where the real power is. So when you hear presidents or federal elected officials spouting off about how they're going to fix education, you can put their comments in the circular file in the corner of your office with most of their other comments. Garbage. So lesson number one in our discussion of the economics of education is that one of the biggest problems about how schools are funded is the question of whether education is a public good. The reality is that it is, and it's not. For starters, 
Many of those who contribute taxes to state and local education systems don't see a direct benefit for their taxes. Maybe they have no kids or the kids are older, but these voters create a quiet but barely consistent pressure to reduce the cost of education. Now, you can see this big time in higher ed, where over the last 30 years, state support has dried up and now individual students are funding their college experience largely with debt, and that will be a definite conversation for another video. The point here is that many just don't feel that schools are a good public investment. But at the same time, most of us intuitively know that education is important, right? So when we see kids not doing well, they're not educated well, we see problems in schools, as a nation, there's a genuine desire to help, and that's good. That's how we see this as a public good. And that explains in part the growth of support for primary and secondary education over the last 20, 30 years. But at least in the US, property taxes and home valuations are deeply, deeply affected by the perceived quality of the local school. So if you're gonna pay taxes, then especially if you're a parent, you want your kids to be the recipient of that tax dollar as much as possible, that's natural. But this begins what I call the hollowing out of communities, not based on the economic viability or housing stock of the neighborhood, but based almost entirely on the perceived quality of the school. How many times have you seen a billboard that says, great school district or something to that effect? This is because the perceived quality of schools and districts are specifically felt by individual property owners. That's unique. So if you're a parent with means and you have the ability to move to another part of town to find a, quote, better school, you'll do so. Many parents who value education have the resources to buy a home in a more expensive district. And so they do so as a way of assuring that their children have a, quote, high quality educational experience. Now, whether it actually is a high quality experience is something we're going to talk about at another time. But for now, let's just assume it's the case for the sake of the argument. So wealthy families tend to cluster in wealthier communities. Those wealthier communities, as a result, push education and they have the means to fund it. The ultimate result is that the school market becomes unbalanced with individual parents making choices that are in the best interest for their own child, not for any public good. And so what do we call it when individuals make choices in their own interests? We call it not a public good, we call it a market. And right now, because of how schools are funded, the school marketplace groups wealthier families in educational experiences that are usually more supported. And of course, as large numbers of wealthier families are clustered, that obviously leaves low-income families clustered as well. So for these families, education is more of a public good, like a road or a bridge. You've got to use the road. You've got to use the bridge. You don't have a choice. It's a public good. But for the wealthy families, it's really a marketplace. This is not an issue of race alone, by the way, y'all. Yes, race comes up, but it's really much more an issue of class. So that hopefully was probably the least surprising thing I'll ever say on this channel, but it still largely goes unspoken and definitely underappreciated. So public schools are a public good and they're a marketplace depending on your income level. And that's again a function of how schools are compensated. Now let's look at the mechanics of how schools receive payments. Specifically, there are two ways that schools get paid. Public schools are paid according to what's commonly referred to as seat time or average daily attendance. If the child is sitting in a chair in the school at a certain time of the day, 
then that school will get paid. If the child is absent or sick, or if they're attending the private school down the street or now homeschool or micro school, that local public school will not be compensated. So let's think about this for a moment. This is really important. This sounds a lot like any other kind of business, doesn't it? Airlines. Airlines only get paid when people are sitting in their chairs, right? As a result, what does that cause? What does that start to create? It creates competition. It causes airlines to compete for your business. It leads to discounted fares, maybe upgrades, and in the case of Southwest Airlines, a no-frills option for cheap, reliable transportation. It can also begin to shift the relationship between the business and its customers, and this is important. As an example, think about United Airlines. Would United ever encourage you to find another airline that might fit your needs better? That would be ridiculous. That's not in their interest. But this is the situation that we put schools in. They're in competition with other models of education and other schools. This is why oftentimes if you ask your school leadership for feedback, it's kind of like asking the president of United Airlines if Delta Airlines is a better carrier. The answer will almost always be no. United Airlines and your school they're both incented to give you the best spin on their product because they want your business. Now, this shouldn't be a new idea or something that's even debatable. It's perfectly logical, but it's oftentimes overlooked in education. So lesson number two for the parents listening. If you're seeking honest feedback from your school, be careful to take it with a grain of salt because your school might lose if you go elsewhere. Now, I must constantly remind viewers that the closer you get to the classroom, the more honest the conversation will be. Teachers are the least interested in the marketplace of schools and almost universally focused on what's best for your child. So keep that in mind. But when you're talking to leadership or you're talking to school districts, you have to understand that they are a business and they are trying to keep you in their business. So education is a business. School is a business. It has some of the same motivations to get your child into the classroom every day. We must accept this. Now, lesson three, it's related. It's really important. Schools are not compensated based on how much your child learns. As a result, the daily pressure on the system is for kids to be in school, not that they learn. Now, I have no doubt I'm going to get some nasty emails about that last comment. And to be clear, I've not met a teacher who's concerned with school finances, but I'm talking about the system of schools. And that system does not reward teachers who educate better, generally speaking. Ask your teacher. Try it. Find out. See if they agree. If they are the very best teacher in the country, do they get paid more or not? And usually the case is no. That's a problem. Most teachers are overwhelmingly paid a salary based on years of service and education level, not based on the growth of the child. Now, true, some schools have started to flirt with this idea, but generally speaking, even if there's an incentive for improved learning, it's very, very, very small, and the teacher sees very, very little reward based on their ability and competence. Now, incidentally, this is part of the reason why some of the best teachers find it difficult to stay in the classroom or even in the system. So imagine for a moment, you're the best player on the Chicago Bulls basketball team, and you were paid the same amount as the worst player. Heck, you might be paid less than the worst player because that player's been there longer. Now that's frustrating after a while, particularly if you're better, and because you're better, you're actually doing more labor. 
That's actually what happens to some of the best teachers. This is unfortunately a common dynamic in schools. Now you understand why many of the absolute best teachers look to get into administration. Moving into admin means they can earn significantly more than being in the classroom while also working less. Can you imagine the best doctor, the best lawyer trying to get out of the operating room or the courtroom in order to earn more money? That would rot those professions. And that's where we are with education. Once again, I'm getting a little bit off track. So I'll talk about this in another video, but let me now know in your comments if you're interested in hearing more about that. So back to how schools get paid and how that leads to dysfunction. So the economics of public school is not based on the amount of learning your child received. It does not relate to how effective your child's teacher is. It's related based on how and how often the child is sitting in the classroom. That's how schools get paid. And this, by the way, is why so many kids can go through an entire educational system not learning very much, but the school being compensating during that time. Let me go a little bit deeper, a quick thought experiment. Imagine with me for a moment that schools were only compensated for their students if they met a specific learning goal. Now, don't hear me as saying I'm recommending this. This will create all sorts of other problems, difficult problems that I'm definitely not recommending. But there's no doubt if schools were paid according to how much kids learned, learning would accelerate. Again, a topic for another time. We'll definitely get into that. But ultimately, there's something deeply problematic when schools get paid, even when kids aren't learning. Now, the fourth and last lesson of the day is another really problematic aspect of public schools, and it is that geography matters in how schools are paid. Now, I need to ask permission. Can I be blunt for a moment? I mean, brutally honest. Okay, here we go. Some kids are harder to teach in comparison with others. Not a huge newsflash, right? Some kids have difficult family lives maybe dysfunction in the home, or parents who, uh, let's say that they live complicated lives. Now, this is where I've spent the majority of the last 15 years of my life. I've seen it close up. It is true. It's incredibly hard and it's terribly sad. But if you think about the economic pressures, if you were Southwest Airlines and certain passengers are far more complicated, more expensive, and others are cheaper for you to serve, there's going to be pressure for you to focus on the easy customers, right? Now, this is just basic human nature, basic economics, folks. Now you begin to understand why some school districts draw such wildly gerrymandered borders. In part, it's because they want to have the easiest kids to teach grouped in their district or school. Of course, there are hours of soul-crushing conversation about this topic that we will get to at some point, but I'm having a good day today and that topic really brings me down because it involves race and privilege and nasty history. So I'm not going to do that today. So focusing back on how schools are paid, they are paid a relatively flat rate regardless of the child that's coming into that school. So there's pressure to avoid the more difficult students and walls get constructed to limit their access. Now, in public schools, there are special funding categories for kids that have challenging lives. True, that's good. But I've not seen any school district that appropriately compensates schools for the dramatic differences in costs and challenges that come with serving kids from complicated home lives. So again, if you're Southwest Airlines and you get paid a flat rate for every passenger, you're going to be tempted to cream skim. Cream skimming means 
you're going to look for the easiest passengers, the cheapest passengers, and you'll market to them. You may even target your marketing to certain neighborhoods, certain demographic categories. This happens in schools. All you have to do is to do what I've done and look at the district boundaries and how they're set and to overlay those boundaries with income. If you do that as I have done, you will see the schools make an obvious attempt to find and capture easier to teach learners. And it's because of how schools are paid. Here's an example, charter schools. I've been involved with charter schools for 15, 20 years. They are public schools that are given some greater levels of freedom and flexibility, but part of their success, truthfully speaking, is because they have a higher bar to entry. And they've been able to find parents who are more focused and more attentive on their child's education. The child may not be any easier or harder to teach, and some charters, notably KIPP, has studied this, and they've proven that the students that come to their campuses are very, very similar to the schools in the larger district in which those students are coming. But what is not mentioned is that KIPP and some of the other high-performing charter schools do get a different caliber of parents. The kids have the same academic standing, but the parents are different. And this parental alignment is no doubt part of the secret sauce, that parents must get over hurdles to apply, and those parents know that the charter school can expel their child. This creates much more alignment between the home and the school. Now, I would argue that therein lies a hidden opportunity to improve learning parental and school alignment. Again, a topic for another conversation. So this is common and is the result of how schools are paid. When schools are paid by a central resource, meaning the state, parents have fewer choices. They cannot cross district boundaries. They cannot choose their school. They cannot choose their teacher. They are left to fly with United Airlines or to walk. And schools at some level know this, and the game begins. Okay, so this video is definitely getting a bit long, so I'm going to conclude with a quick summary and next move for parents. So lesson one, education is a public good and it's a marketplace. The parents who have the means view it as a marketplace and they are constantly making choices that are, in their minds, in the best interests of their child. Now, in another video, I'm going to show you how they are most likely wrong. But for now, we need to understand that education is a public good and a marketplace. Lesson two, the closer you get to the classroom, the more you can trust the adult in the school. The more that school adult that teacher is going to be looking out for your child and not for the economics of the school. So take feedback and guidance from schools, particularly leadership, with a grain of salt. And again, in another video, I'm going to point out how most of the advice you're receiving, regardless of the school, regardless of the official, is based on assumptions that are questionable at best and certainly antiquated. More to come on that. Lesson three, schools are not compensated based on how much your child learns. That means it must be your job, parents, your job to set learning expectations. And depending on your school, those expectations might be more about seat time than about actual learning. Your job, parents, to pay attention there. Lesson four is the old real estate maxim, location, location, location. Location is all that matters in real estate. And in school, it also matters because geography impacts how schools are paid. And those who can choose their geography, parents who can choose their geography, have many more options than those who cannot. Well, that was a lot. 
And that's it for today. I know I'm just scratching the surface on most of these topics, but I hope that each of you found something to be curious about and frankly, a little bit angry about. My pledge is to call these issues in education as I see them without regard to the hyper-political extremes involved with education most of the time. So please let me know if there are other topics you'd like me to explore. I'm making a list and we'll upvote those that have a lot of interest. Thanks for listening. And remember, when discussing education, it is not what you think. It is what you believe. Thanks for listening to Education Explained. More to come. I'm Matt Barnes.